Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Park Road Books, the oldest and only independent bookstore in Charlotte, and by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence. Support is also provided by members like you, and for that, we offer our gratitude along with some awesome member-only content. You can find out more about these member benefits at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to their written words. This is the show where we meet local and regional authors, and sometimes even farther afield with the magic of remote podcasting, and we hear them read their work. We are a proud member of the Queen City Podcast Network, a uh, collection of Charlotte podcasts produced in and centering around the Queen City, and also a proud member of Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, broadcasting radio shows and podcasts about authors to a worldwide audience. I'm Landis Wade, the producer and host of this podcast. I'm a recovering trial lawyer. I'm the author of a trilogy of books where lawyers save Christmas, kind of a cross between My Cousin Vinny and Miracle on 34th Street, and I write stories, and I love books, and I love dogs, and I love beaches and mountains and fly fishing and sports and reading and more. And I'm excited about today's episode, so let's get to it. In today's episode, we meet award-winning novelist Heather Bell Adams, whose most recent book is The Good Luck Stone, published by Haywire Books. Julie Cantrell, New York Times bestselling author of Perennial, calls The Good Luck Stone a plot-perfect page-turner. Adams has hit the sweet spot, mastering a literary tone with commercial pacing, a screen-worthy winner, and a book club bullseye. As the story moves between the verdant jungles of the war-torn Philippines and the glitter of modern-day Savannah, friendships new and old are tested. Along the way, the protagonist grapples with one of life's heart-wrenching truths. You can only outrun your secrets for so long. Heather starts the show with the reading at a good place, the beginning, where we meet the protagonist Audrey Thorpe, an elderly woman and matriarch of one of Savannah's finest families. Chapter 1 Wearing the brooch was a risk, but surely no one would recognize it. Audrey Thorpe lingered by the wall in the lobby of Savannah's Jepson Center for the Arts. Waiters circulated with trays of champagne and bite-sized crab cakes, while the museum's donors mingled and congratulated themselves on another fine exhibition. Audrey leaned against a linen-skirted table for support and returned a friend's wave across the crowd. At her age, the room's pale stone floor was almost as treacherous as an ice rink. She'd gone her entire life, 90 years, without a broken bone. Now, her sense of balance worsened with each passing day. At home, she resorted to using a cane when she felt unsteady, but she didn't like to be seen with it on social occasions. The last of the evening sun filtered in through the glass facade overlooking Telfair Square. Trying to quell her impatience, she touched the brooch pinned to her dress. The cloudy green stone, flawless jade, still as smooth as when she'd first held it long ago, had been carved to resemble a hibiscus bloom. A tiny seed pearl glimmered from its center. As soon as her granddaughter approached, Audrey dropped her hand, which had begun to tremble. She didn't want Deanna to notice the brooch. This particular jewel hadn't seen the light of day since the war. Deanna, 
a 38-year-old woman who monogrammed practically everything she touched, straightened the name tag pinned to her navy sheath. It had been printed with Deanna Gayton, but she'd added Thorpe with a hyphen in blue ink. Obsessed with social standing, she used the family's name every chance she got. Are you looking forward to the new exhibit? Deanna tilted her head to appraise Audrey's dress, made of pale green silk printed with purple irises. She didn't appear to notice the brooch. Then again, when it came to the family jewelry, Deanna had always been most interested in her grandmother's diamond-encrusted watch, an anniversary gift from Audrey's late husband. Deanna repeated her question about the exhibit, louder, even though Audrey had heard her perfectly well the first time. Her granddaughter often spoke to her the same way she spoke to her 10-year-old son. Audrey nodded. As a member of the museum's board, she'd studied the oversized color photographs of ancient Filipino artifacts, a stem cup and footed jarlet discovered in Leda Leda Cave, a copper plate inscribed in Kavi, blue and white porcelain from Palawan, a death mask made of gold, burial jars from the late Neolithic period, some with traces of their original red paint. It was astonishing, really, what survived, hidden deep within the earth while battles raged. Hey, listeners, before we dive into the interview here, I'd like to uh, thank you for taking some of your valuable time to listen to this episode today. We really appreciate it. Uh, I'd also like to let you know about a couple of benefits available to our listeners. If you sign up for our email list at our website, charlottereaderspodcast.com, uh, we will send you uh, a free ebook, the first book in my Christmas courtroom trilogy. We promise not to spam you. That just takes way too much time. We just provide a bi-weekly newsletter to let uh, listeners know what's coming and uh, allow you to engage with the show. Also, show notes of this episode with images, links, and information about the authors are available at charlottereaderspodcast.com. And finally, if you'd like to support your uh, favorite local independent bookstore and get audiobooks at the same time, uh, you can join Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M. And if you use the promo code Charlotte Reader, that's all one word, you may not be from Charlotte, but you can still be a Charlotte Reader to get this benefit. When you use that promo code, you're going to get uh, two books for the price of one when you join at uh, Libro's $14.99 monthly membership level. This is a great way to support uh, your local independent bookstore and get uh, great audiobooks uh, at the same time. So check it out. And now, here's a little bit more about the author. Followed by our conversation, more readings, and our writing life discussion. I hope you enjoy. Heather Bell Adams is the author of the novels Maranatha Road, West Virginia University Press, 2017, and The Good Luck Stone, Haywire Books, 2020. Maranatha Road won the gold medal for the Southeast Region and the Independent Publisher Book Awards and was named the Deep South Magazine's Fall Winter Reading List. Good Luckstone, which won the Grassic Short Novel Prize, appears on Deep South Magazine's summer reading list, the most anticipated small press novel lists for The Big Other and BuzzFeed. Heather Short Fiction, which has won the Carrie McRae Memorial Literary Award and James Still Fiction Prize, appears in the Thomas Wolfe Review, Atticus Review, the Pettigrew Review, Pisgah Review, Pembroke Magazine, Broad River Review, and other journals. Heather's originally from Hendersonville, North Carolina, and now lives in Raleigh, where she works as a lawyer. A nationally recognized scholar on the works of Ron Rash, she also volunteers on the Raleigh Review fiction staff. She loves yoga and watching her son golf, but she says she doesn't love cooking. 
Heather, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here talking with you. Yeah, so congratulations on your second novel. Thank you. It's an exciting time for sure. Yeah, and, uh, you know, also while being a lawyer by day, right? That's right. Yeah, that's yeah. the day job. You know, we kind of have a quota here on Charlotte Lewis podcast. We only have so many lawyers uh, in a season. And so I think you, you, you got into our quota system here. But uh, you really can't call yourself a recovering lawyer like I can because you're still active. You're more like a discovering lawyer because, what well, you manage litigation, right? That's right. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad to squeak in under that quota you got there. Um, yeah, I, I'm not recovering quite yet. I will still say I'm in the discovery phase, I guess. Yeah, so uh, true confessions here. Your bosses probably won't hear this podcast. Do you ever think about writing and novels and plots and interesting places while you're at your place of work? You know, I'd say only on my commute and my lunch break. Otherwise, the, the day job is challenging enough on its own that uh, it keeps me pretty occupied. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I might as well ask it now. We're going to do a writing life segment before the show uh, is over today, which is always fun. Um, but how's your work and training as a lawyer uh, helped you as a writer or maybe sometimes uh, interfered? Because sometimes I have to say I have to untrain myself a little bit from what I've learned as a lawyer. And yet there are things I think that also help, too. What do you what's your perspective on that? I think you're right on both counts. I think that being trained as a lawyer helps in the sense of. Uh, conveying a persuasive narrative. So as you know from doing trial work, which I know you have done, part of litigation is crafting a story that is persuasive to the judge or the jury or whoever might be uh, hearing it. So I think in that way, it's helpful. On the other hand, as, as you know as well, in legal writing, we are often so constrained by the word count that I find myself, even when I'm writing fiction, I tend to draft on the short side. And I think that uh, succinct, that, that desire to be succinct uh, comes from legal writing, where you only have so many words to get your point across. So it's been interesting in fiction writing. I have had my agent and some editors at times tell me, you can take your time. You can give us a little bit more here, you know, expand the scene a bit. And uh, it's nice to be reminded that we do have that freedom when it comes to fiction writing. Yeah, that's so true. I was thinking about that in writing my, my couple of books and I would get feedback from the editor, you know, tell me what else is going on around here. What else is happening? You know, t give me a little more color for the scenery and the, you know, tell me a little bit more about the, you know, so you're right. Maybe it comes from, we're trying to get, Boom, 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 and move through it. But uh, uh, okay, good, good to know. Uh, let's talk about the Good Luck Stone, your your latest novel. It's uh, let's talk about the cover first. Uh, we got a lot of flowers on the cover here, right? Yes, the cover. I just love what the cover designer came up with. We had um, my editor sent me from the cover designer. I guess maybe six or so different designs that they were considering and and asked for my input. And I, I had two finalists that I really loved, and this was one of them. Uh, and I love, and this actually was my first choice in all honesty, and I just love the vibrant colors. I think it's really eye-catching, and I like the woman's profile and, of course, you know, the flowers that surround her. I think you get 
the sense of the tropical atmosphere from the South South Pacific uh, portion of the story. Um, and then, yeah, just like I say, I hope the colors really kind of catch people's eye on the bookshelf. So what kind of flower is this we're looking at? Uh, those would be hibiscus. Mm-hmm. And I just, you know, it's fu- funny because, you know, I'll pick up the cover and look at it when I talk to the author, but I've, I've read your book and I've, I kind of looked at the cover, but I'm just now noticing the silhouette, you know, and I saw that right before you mentioned it. Uh, that That's something that I've seen more in, in book covers lately where you've got the flowers that are around the outside edges, but they form the figure of a woman, a young woman, probably maybe Audrey when she was younger, maybe, perhaps. Yes, that's what I like to imagine as well. Okay. So um, we meet Audrey Thorpe in the opening scene that uh, you just read on, on the show here. Uh, we also meet her granddaughter, Deanna, uh, and we see a glancing reference to this brooch, uh, which we're going to learn pretty early in the book. I'm not giving anything away. It's the good luck stone. Um, and Audrey is trying to hide it, you know, and we're, we're a little curious. I wonder why she would try to hide you know, her brooch. Is she not proud of it? Is she, you know, is there a secret there? Of course there's a secret there. This is a novel, right? <laughs> tell us, tell us a little bit more about Audrey Thorpe, her, maybe her age, her place in society at this point, um, and ground us a little bit to her World War II situation. Sure. Yeah. So Audrey Thorpe, when we meet her, is 90 years old. It's uh, 2010 when the the present day storyline of the book is set in 2010. And uh, she's 90 years old. She is what I call a society lady in Savannah, Georgia. She is wealthy. She lives in a gorgeous mansion on Palm Tree Line, Victory Drive. She still lives there by herself. She's trying to retain her independence. Uh, She is on all the right committees and all the right boards around town. Uh, Her family has given a lot of money around Savannah. Uh, And yet she has this secret. She has never really told her friends or her family about the time she spent as a nurse in World War II. And this brooch that she takes out and wears uh, when we first meet her dates back to that time in World War II. And we we come to find out fairly soon in the World War II storyline how she got that brooch, you know, what it meant to her, how she and her friends understood the jade stone to potentially convey good luck, you know, to the wearer and protect the wearer. Um, And so, you know, she has pulled it out at the start of chapter one and has decided to wear it because the exhibit she's going to visit at the museum contains Filipino artifacts. And she got that brooch when she was in the Philippines so many years ago. Okay. So that's, that's good. You kind of gave us the two perspectives, uh, Savannah and the South Pacific. And that's kind of the structure of the book. Uh, Let's talk about that structure a second. You do a good job. I really enjoyed when I was reading it. uh, You know, you're you're moving from one time period to another, but you're keeping us interested enough in both stories as you go. Um, So was that something you did from the very beginning or did you write these sort of parallel stories and then go back and figure out, okay, when am I going to cliffhang this one? And when am I going to cliffhang that one? That's a great question. And I would say in some ways, yes to all of the above. So I I did flip back and forth as I was drafting 
when I felt like, for lack of a better way of putting it, uh, drafting a present day storyline, I I would do that, you know, if that was on my mind that day. Or if I had been knee deep in research and I really wanted to uh, talk about the World War II story, I might, you know, dip into that. So I dipped back and forth between the 2010 storyline and, and the World War II. What I also did, though, is tried in some ways, after I got a little ways into the draft, to map out on index cards uh, how the stories overlaid with one another so that we had hopefully exciting and interesting moments. And as you say, cliffhangers a bit uh, for each storyline. So we might be left with a little bit of a cliffhanger in the World War II part, and then we'll go back to 2010 and then have a little bit of a you know question mark at the end of that chapter and then pick back up. So I, I tried to do it that way. Yeah, and we're going to meet Deanna and another character or two before we're done today with some of the readings. But uh, she appears briefly in the opening scene. She's the granddaughter of Audrey Thorpe. Uh, she's kind of trying to look after her grandmother a little bit. Her grandmother's very fiercely independent, of course, given what she went through in World War II, which plays out in the book. It's it's understandable. Um, but just sort of they got this tug, don't they, going on between I can take care of myself versus we got to get you some help. That's right. And I worked really hard on making both of their positions credible and sympathetic. That was something I changed in the editing process. I worked with Julie Cantrell. You mentioned uh, her novel, Perennials. I, I worked with Julie in an editorial capacity at one uh, phase of drafting. And she said, you know, we can have Deanna be somewhat of, ant of an antagonist, but she still certainly needs to seem believable and not a cardboard villain. So I worked on, you know, putting myself in a position of a granddaughter who, Deanna has her faults, certainly, but also she is, she has some legitimate concerns about her grandmother's ability to take care of herself. So we might disagree with her approach and her sort of strident, you know, personality. Um, and certainly we're seeing Deanna through Audrey's perspective. And we know that Audrey very much wants to retain her independence and uh, pushes back against what her granddaughter's trying to do. But I, I did try to, as I say, keep them both as a believable fleshed out characters. Yeah. And you could have set the, uh, the United States portion of this pretty much anywhere you wanted. You chose Savannah. Why Savannah? Well, my family has vacationed in Savannah for many years and my mother-in-law actually lives there now in the historic district. And I have always loved going to Savannah and just thinking about what kind of stories uh, might be in a town like that when you consider the history, the beautiful scenery, uh, even the vegetation, you know, the Spanish moss everywhere. I mean, it just, to me, has always felt like the kind of place where there are secrets and there are stories just around every corner. So I I got the idea for this story for the Good Luck Stone originally when I would be down in Savannah and looking at these elegant antebellum mansions and thinking, first of all, who lives there, right? You know, who lives in these places? And then uh, what if there was someone who lived in one of these 
mansions and appeared to have on paper this perfect life, but she had a secret that she was hiding from everyone in her life. Yeah, because this character, she's a philanthropist. She's well-known in town. She could walk in any restaurant. People would know who she is. Uh, she's just a very matriarchal, pretty much for the for the city kind of person. Um, and And so you pick the South Pacific, and we've got a read that's coming up here that's going to give us a flavor for, you know, what it was a little bit about how the characters met in the South Pacific. Um, but you told me a little bit about how you got interested in this story. Let's flesh that out just a little bit. Uh, the nurses in World War II, Philippines, South Pacific. How'd you come across that and how did it get your, you know, novelist brain working? Sure. Well, you know, I knew I wanted to do a World War II storyline and I feel like there are so many wonderful World War II stories that are set in Europe. And I didn't necessarily have the interest in adding to that or trying to compete with those stories, which are really tremendous in their own right. I thought it would be interesting to try something different and have a World War II story set in the South Pacific. So I did a lot of research in terms of what all was going on in various countries in the South Pacific during World War II, certainly Pearl Harbor, but, you know, all sorts of other historical events that were occurring. And I kept a lot of notes and I had a lot of different possibilities for what I wanted that World War II storyline to look like. At one point, I read about the Army and Navy nurses who uh were on Corregidor, an island in the Philippines, and they were taken prisoner by the Japanese, uh, 77 of them, I believe. And immediately prior to their capture, a small group, a smaller group of nurses uh, was rescued. They, they were able to leave the island, uh, some by plane, some by submarine. And I thought, well, what if you had this group of friends? They had bonded during the war, um, been through all sorts of hardship together, thought really that they would be together for the duration of the war. And what if some of them, uh, you know, part of their group was rescued and got to leave and return to freedom. And meanwhile, the remainder of the group was taken prisoner. And those prisoners of war were captured and held for almost two years. So it was a significant part of their life, um, or maybe almost three, actually, now that I think about it. Um, so I just, when I read about that, that daring cap, uh, escape, the daring escape of some of the nurses, and then the capture of the remaining ones who were left behind, that to me was the key moment of the World War II story. So then I had my time period, then I had my setting in the Philippines, and it kind of took off from there. Okay, so leading up to this read you're going to do right now, we've got uh, three characters. Uh, they're all young. Uh, Audrey is one of them. They've just landed. Um, it's Manila, right, in the Philippines. That's right. And so tell us who the other two characters are to set up this read that you're about to do here. Yes. So the next reading is going to introduce you to uh, Audrey's new friends, Kat and Penny. And so upon I, Audrey's arrival in Manila, she re meets these other two women, uh, Kat and Penny. 
And really from the start, uh, they bond with one another. Uh, Kat has had a difficult life, which she shares with them. She is has been orphaned, doesn't really have any sort of family. At the present time there, when they're in Manila, she presents this very polished exterior. She's very beautiful. She is just polished to a sheen in terms of her impeccable makeup and uh, that sort of thing. You know, her hair is just so. Uh, Meanwhile, Penny is sort of a ruddy complexion and uh, very muscular build and uh, outgoing they these three women really do bond with each other from the start and they're able to be intimate and to share with each other how they're afraid of what might happen next war has not yet arrived there in the philippines but certainly the rumors are that it's on the horizon so it's sort of ever present in their minds from day 1 all right. Well, let's uh, let's. Anytime you're ready, we're going to find out what's going on at Sternberg General Hospital. They were assigned to Sternberg General Hospital, a Spanish-style multi-acre complex in a busy part of the capital, which they had passed on the drive-in. Audrey vaguely remembered the typed schedule, ordering her to report to the surgical ward for her first assignment. In the nurses' quarters behind the medical buildings, they found their trunks and duffel bags. By the light of a lamp in the corner, they could make out gleaming tile floors, ceiling fans, and rows of beds with army blankets, unneeded in the tropical heat, folded at the foot. They managed to find three beds in the back corner and got to work making them up. Yawning, they left their trunks to unpack later. Despite the lateness of the hour, they talked into the night, even as another nurse down the row hissed at them to be quiet. Close to dawn, they were drifting off when Kat sat up in bed, her arms wrapped around her knees. Her pale cheeks glistened with cold cream. What is it? Penny asked, her voice groggy with sleep. Anything could happen, Kat whispered. Perhaps she was remembering the sudden crash at the club earlier in the evening. Peace could so easily splinter into chaos. But I'm awfully glad we've got each other. Penny had propped herself on her elbows. Me too, she said before lying back down, more than you know. Audrey nodded in the dark. Let's meet up after our shifts. Breakfast too, but I'm thinking about after we've finished. It seemed too much to hope for that they would share an assignment. But at least after a long day, she would have Kat and Penny to look forward to. When she was a young girl, she had gotten up at night to look out her bedroom window at the paddocks, velvety smooth under the moon. Gravel paths led down to the barns and the little stone cottage that served as an office for the property manager, a potted geranium by the door. The paths ended at the edge of the property, and Audrey would invent different possibilities for what lay beyond. A lone white horse, like something she'd read about in a story a shimmering pond visible only by her, a carpet of golden leaves that never turn brown or brittle. Being here on the other side of the world seemed just as fanciful a destination, a far-fetched and surreal sort of dream. Back home, she would climb back into her four-poster bed, the sheets smelling of the lavender spray the housemaid Eugenia used when she pressed them. Now, Audrey looked first at Penny, snoring lightly, her arm flung across her forehead, 
and at Kat, who'd pulled her knees into a fetal position. No matter what happened, the three of them were in it together. She tried to memorize their faces before she let her eyes close. She didn't know it then, but their trio would be tested in ways they never imagined. In less than a year's time, one of them would be gone, one left behind, and one dead. Early in the book, that's good. It's uh, We're only on page 16. We know that some bad things are going to happen you know, in the book, uh, but some good things too. And one of the things uh, I think uh, to help, and it comes out a little bit in here when you talk about her being back at home in the sheets that smell of lavender and the housemaid Eugenia. She, Audrey came from a family of means, and she's meeting up with uh, women who didn't come from the same background that she is. So she's being thrown into this uh, war environment. She's very young. Her parents don't even really appreciate what, what she's doing, do they? They don't. Unfortunately, Audrey's family is so into material possessions and their wealth and their place in society and Audrey making a good match in terms of her future husband that they don't even respect her decision to to become a nurse or to certainly to join the war. Yeah, so we know that Audrey's not the one that's dead because she's going <laughs> to help us tell the story. So e- either you know Penny or Cat is going to be gone or left behind. We don't know that uh, early in the book. Um, you bounce then back to the present after sort of leaving us hanging a little bit uh, early in the in the book here, and we meet uh, another character. This gets back into the tension between the granddaughter, who, if you look at it in a positive way, is really trying to protect her grandmother. Um, from her grandmother's perspective, she's meddling. I can take care of myself kind of thing. And she wants to provide some help. And so we're going to be introduced to a new character. Uh, tell us about Laurel Eaton before you read this next uh, piece here. Yes. So Laurel Eaton is a middle-aged uh, young mother in new to Savannah. She's originally from Western North Carolina, where I'm originally from. And she is in desperate need of a job. Her family is not doing well financially, and her son, Oliver, is having a lot of problems in school and, in fact, uh, is having to go to this very expensive uh, private school in Savannah because they're, they haven't been able to find a public school that will give him the help that he needs, unfortunately. Uh, he needs some individual tutoring and that sort of thing. So when we meet Laurel Eaton, she is... Uh, looking to become Audrey's caregiver or caretaker, which of course is an idea that Deanna has put into her head since Deanna feels her grandmother uh, needs that sort of help. And that is how we first encounter Laurel. Okay. And this is kind of a connected read. You can read two scenes from, from a particular chapter to kind of give us a flavor for this. We'll do this before our break. So uh, anytime you're ready, Heather, take it away. Late Monday morning, Deanna called to say she was bringing someone over. Audrey watched out the front window, its glass slightly rippled with age, as her granddaughter strode up the front walk with an unfamiliar woman. Although she looked to be around Deanna's age, this woman appeared less polished than Deanna's friends, wobbly in her sandals, the full skirt of her sundress a bit rumpled. Angelic countenance aside, If Deanna thought she would hire this woman to take care of her, she was sorely mistaken. Audrey planned to send them politely on their way with nothing more than a glass of tea and a cheese straw. 
She straightened the area rug in the foyer, and her back creaked as she stood again. Deanna didn't bother ringing the bell. Instead, she used her key, which was meant for emergencies, and burst inside, bringing with her the scent of the expensive bergamot and grapefruit perfume she bought on her annual girls' shopping trip in Atlanta. Minutes later, the three women sat in the rear parlor, a book-lined room with a marble fireplace. So they sit in the rear parlor for a bit and discuss uh, whether Audrey does in fact need a caregiver. And there's, of course, some conflict around that. Um, To sort of uh, improve the mood of the situation, Audrey and Laurel Eaton end up going out to the back porch where they sit and look over Audrey's uh, garden uh, in in the back courtyard. So that's where we pick up and see them again. They sat in silence while Audrey considered what to do. If she sent this young woman away, she would have to look for another job. She seemed desperate on some sort of precipice, and Audrey liked her. The last time she'd experienced such immediate intimacy might have been when she first met Cat and Penny. Like her old friends, Mrs. Eaton came across as forthright and genuine. A refreshing combination when so many people hid their true selves behind a polished veneer. Of course, if she agreed to a caregiver, Deanna would win the battle. What might come next? Deanna could try to take over her bank accounts, perhaps move her out of this house. The French door clicked closed behind them, and Deanna called out, What are y'all doing sitting on the steps like that? Nana, I swear it'll take a forklift to get you up again. Your knees will be stiff for days. Mrs. Eaton stood and offered her hand. Without so much as a word passing between them, she helped Audrey up and held her elbow until she was steady. Then, as if by tacit agreement, she let go. They'd only just met, but they already understood each other. So she's going to play a important part of this novel too uh, in the present day because she's going to be kind of a supporting character to Audrey throughout uh, Audrey's struggles to deal with her secret. Um, So uh, listeners, uh, we're going to have a little break, uh, but when we come back, we're going to, we're going to find out uh, what launches Audrey to try to figure out how to come to terms with the secret that she's kept all these years. Uh, We're going to do the writing life segment. We've also got a final read, so uh, we'll be back in just a second. Stay with us. Thanks. Hey, listeners, I'd like to share some information with you about uh, four organizations that are important players in our literary community, and uh, they're also supporters of the podcast. Uh, Spark Publications, Charlotte Lit, Charlotte Writers Club, and North Carolina Writers Network. Spark Publications is one of our early supporters, and they have been sending me some uh, wonderful authors uh, with some well-designed books. They are an award-winning independent publishing firm that helps authors bring their work to life. They work strategically with their authors to help them complete their manuscripts, design their covers and books uh, for marketability, register their ISBNs and Library of Congress numbers, proofread, manage the print options, market, and much more. To find out more about how you can publish a nonfiction or art book with the support of an experienced team, check out sparkpublications.com. Charlotte Lit, otherwise known as Charlotte Center for Literary Arts, is an organization in which I'm a member. It's a nonprofit art center whose mission is to celebrate the literary arts by educating and engaging writers and readers through classes, conversations, and community. Uh, I really enjoy participating in those classes. Uh, 
They see themselves, and I do too, as a valued and vital part of the Charlotte arts community, and they've become a premier creative writing center for the region. You can find out more about them and how to participate at charlottelit.org. For 98 years, the Charlotte Writers Club has continued to offer a supportive writing environment in the greater Charlotte community. Uh, I was a board member of that uh, organization for a few years recently. Uh, really enjoyed uh, participating that way and also in their regular meetings, their contests, and their community organizations. They offer a monthly newsletter, uh, monthly meetings, and speakers. Yeah, I was speaker chairman too. Uh, they do critique groups, open mics, and uh, they offer writing workshops and writing contests. You can find out more about uh, Charlotte Writers Club at uh, charlottewritersclub.org. I'm also a member of the North Carolina Writers Network. Uh, they offer six annual competitions, three annual conferences, and I think I've attended uh, all three of those. Many online classes uh, and critiquing and editing services uh, for their members. They serve over 1,400 members in North Carolina and beyond uh, in all genres and all levels of experience uh, with all manner of publishing credits. To find out more about the North Carolina Writers Network, uh, check out ncwriters.org. As a writer and a reader, I have benefited from participating in all three of these writing organizations, Charlotte Writers Club, Charlotte Lit, and North Carolina Writers Network. It's been a great experience for me. I've also enjoyed collaborating with Spark Publications, meeting and uh, interviewing their authors and looking at their fine work. If you'd like to check out uh, what each of these uh, supporters has to offer, uh, go to our show notes, uh, scroll to the bottom, and you'll find information about each one, uh, links, and also a promo code. Hey, listeners, uh, welcome back uh, to Charlotte Roos Podcast. I'm here with Heather Bell Adams. Uh, she's the author of The Good Luck Stone, a novel that uh, we're featuring today on the podcast. It's her, her second novel. And in this one, uh, as you know from our conversation, uh, we've got a character, Audrey Thorpe, who's got a secret. Um, she's modern-day Savannah, but uh, in World War II, she was a nurse uh, and got caught up in this group of nurses that uh, – you know, where the enemy was closing in and MacArthur left them and went off some, somewhere else and, and they got captured and so forth. But uh, so she's got this secret and we're part of the book uh, in the in the present day. Um, Heather, maybe you can pick it up and set up this read just a little bit. There's a letter, I guess, that comes in and uh, you're going to read about that, but uh, sort of ground us in where we are in the novel at this point. Sure. So Audrey has now hired Laurel Eaton as her caregiver, uh, sort of against her own wishes, but to kind of placate her granddaughter. And also she felt this kinship, as we heard in our last reading, with Laurel and knows that Laurel was desperate for a job. So she wanted to help her out. So Laurel and Audrey have now been working together, if you will, Um Laurel comes over to Audrey's house every day and helps her with those sort of tasks and errands around the house, drives her around town to doctor's appointments, the grocery store, that sort of thing. Although Audrey can still drive herself, you know, uh, Laurel tries to help her out. Uh, one day, Laurel brings her son Oliver to Audrey's house. It's Labor Day, so he doesn't have school. And they begin talking about Audrey's time in World War II. It arises because Oliver's working on a school project. And Audrey says, sort of without thinking, just because it's been on her mind, well, you could write about World War II in the South Pacific. Um, Audrey has, ever since that first chapter where she wore the brooch to the museum exhibit, She's been thinking about her time in the Philippines, and as Laurel and Oliver are at her house, 
uh, they're going through Audrey's mail and Audrey receives uh, a couple of letters that she's quite curious about. Uh, they accompany a newspaper picture of her wearing the brooch at the museum exhibit. And so this reading picks up uh Audrey has waited until Laurel and Oliver have left the house. And then she, of course, wants to read those letters and find out what they say. All right. I know what happened, but uh, I'm on the edge of my seat. So let's uh, let's get to it. <laughs> as soon as Laurel and Oliver left the house, Audrey had snatched the letters from her pocket and read them three, maybe four times by the light of a lamp. When she finished, she leaned against the table, her mind reeling. She listened to the sounds of the house in the sunny afternoon. The grandfather clock's weighty pendulum swung back and forth, a creak in the plaster as the house settled further, a bird outside calling suddenly and frantically to its mate. Imagine my shock after all these years, seeing you so alive, absolutely thriving, so close by. After all their time apart, as Audrey read the handwritten words, she found she could still summon forth the cadence of Penny's voice. I wonder, discovering this life you've made for yourself, whether anyone in your family or social circle knows the same Audrey I once did. My nephew located your granddaughter online, and a boy called Ford Thorpe Gayton, whom I'm guessing is your great-grandson. Are you close? How well did we know each other? Audrey had no choice but to take action. She needed to defend herself, to tell the whole story. After all this time, Penny deserved to hear it. All those years ago, Audrey had been at a crossroads. She'd agonized over her decision and kept it secret ever since. She pressed the gas pedal, then let up as she remembered the speed limit. This happened again and again until she grew lightheaded. She resolved to keep her speed steady. At the first sign of dizziness, she would have to pull over. By now, Laurel would have realized she'd left town. She would no doubt be surprised, maybe even a bit hurt, Audrey hadn't asked her to come along. For all her insistence to Deanna that she could take care of herself, Audrey didn't know the last time she'd embarked on a drive this long, or even ventured out onto the interstate. But she needed to do this for herself. Before long, two days, three at most, she would return to Savannah to her old life. By then, she would be a changed person, someone who had finally seized the opportunity to defend a decision she'd made during the war, as momentous as it was irreversible. So, Heather, this is one of those plot points in the book that, uh, you know, the protagonist is now facing an obstacle and they've got to now, they've now decided they're going to try to address it. And so they're moving forward to do that. But then you start throwing all these obstacles in the way of this character to get to her destination. And you use the fact that she's older, um, struggling, maybe not able to see very well, doesn't have her medication. So this road trip she takes, which should take a couple of hours, ends up taking a long time, right? And and maybe she's not going to make it in time. That's right. You know, I really think as much as I sympathize with Audrey, and of course I do, I love her dearly, uh, she really ought not have embarked on this journey by herself. <laughs> um, she gets lost. She uh, loses her medication, and that causes further health problems for her. So she loses some time really just trying to feel better. Um, and 
I want the reader to understand why she felt compelled to take this journey, but also to be quite worried about her and whether she'll make it safely. Yeah. And you do a good job with that uh, because you're thinking, come on, Audrey, turn right, not left. You know, come on, Audrey, you know, call for help. Come on, Audrey. <laughs> you know, the whole time you're not going to make it. You're not going to make it, you know? So yeah, it's, it's, it, you did that well. And then while she's struggling to get where she needs to be, you're back and forth, to, you know, to the World War II time period. All right. So we're going to break from the story for just a second, do some writing life discussion here. Uh, let's start out with uh, the fact that you've written two novels. Now you've also got an active career. Um, you, this, very challenging day job. It used to be you were what we call an outhouse lawyer. You worked in a big firm like I did and did litigation. Now you're an in-house lawyer, but the stresses are probably no less. It's just a different kind of stress, you know, that you deal with, but nonetheless is a challenging job. In addition to doing your work as a novel, um, I'm curious um, how you manage that life and write, uh, you know, these very well-written books and these stories. How, how do you do that? Well, thank you. Um, you know, sometimes better than other times, certainly. Uh, sometimes I feel like I'm trying to juggle a lot of balls in the air and not doing a great job at any of it. But I really do try to fit writing in, I call it into the margins. I think you and I have talked about that before where, you know, my husband and son golf a lot, um, nights and weekends. Uh, I just try, even if it's just drafting a scene or tweaking some chapter or excuse me, some sentences that I wrote earlier that morning, any little progress that I'm making, I feel like counts. <laughs> um, I try not to be too hard on myself about a certain word count each day or anything like that, because the reality is given other obligations, I might not be able to meet that word count. And then I would beat myself up over over not being able to check that box off my to-do list. So I try to remember that any progress counts and also that um, it's supposed to be fun. So I just, I do try to have fun with it. Yeah. And so uh, do you like the research aspect of it uh, as much as the writing aspect or do you, are you the kind of writer that wants to kind of get at it and the research is, you know, pulling you back? How, how do you think of the research and the writing is compatible with one another? That's a great question. And I think it's really interesting from a historical fiction perspective. Certainly I had to do more research for the good luck stone than for Maranatha road. Of course I had to research world war two, the Philippines nursing. And uh, I find that the research is very, very interesting to me. And I really don't mind doing it at all. I, I have always enjoyed learning new things I do think when I'm engaged in a lot of research, I reach a point where I feel anxious to begin writing. And I generally take that as my cue to set the research aside if I can and go ahead and dig into the writing process, even if that means bracketing certain details that I'll need to fill in later by going back to the research books. Yeah. And do you have any uh, particular tools that you use, um, uh, you being a lawyer and having all these different kind of programs that you use for different things to manage litigation? Are you a, are, are you kind of a widget person? Do you, do you use like Scrivener? Do you, do you use, what, what do you use, uh, Heather, when you to compartmentalize well, and keep up with your research and your writing and everything? Yeah. Well, I, 
I know there are a lot of really great programs out there. I hear a lot of good things about Scrivener and other programs. Um, I'm laughing just because you have, as I said, had the patience of a saint with me today as we've experienced some technical difficulties. So it may not surprise you to learn that I'm not um, super into a lot of the complicated software programs and that sort of thing. Um, I do, uh, I, I just, I draft in Word and then I, I'm a big fan of post-it notes and those little colored flags, you know, and I um, have little systems where I might be marking setting details, say, with purple colored flags and, you know, military strategy with green colored flags and that sort of thing, just to make it a little bit easier to go back and find those little details that I need to fill in. I also really enjoy taking notes as I read and do research. And and also as I'm drafting and thoughts come to me, I carry around a little, you know, just a cheap little spiral notebook. And I, I put a lot of notes in there as well. And I think um, I think I, I learn by writing notes sometimes too. You know, it helps me to absorb what I have read. Um, and then, as I say, I, I draft and I put brackets around parts that I know I'll need to either confirm with the research or that I haven't researched yet and will need to go back and research. So then I try to just keep going uh, and then go back in and fill in those bracket parts later. Well, in your defense, the uh, technical things today aren't, aren't your fault. The internet guys were met- messing with us today and trying to, trying to get this thing to work remotely since we can't be in the same, we kind of, we kind of joked, you could have driven to Charlotte, we could have gone to the studio and you'd have gotten back by the time we got some of these things resolved. But that's, hey, that's, that's remote podcasting during the time of COVID. Um, all right, let me ask you this question. You've got two novels. A lot of times after the first novel, which you had success with, um, you know, there's pressure. There's pressure to write another novel quickly. You've had this success. You're being asked to speak at conferences. You know, okay, Heather, where's your next book? Did you feel any pressure or you're young? I mean, you're a young writer, right? I mean, you've got a young fa- your family. You're young. You're, you're, you're young in your career. Did you feel the pressure or did you just kind of say, I'm going to take it at my own pace? Well, I was always gratified, I guess, when people ask me if I was working on something new, just because that made me feel like they might want to read it. So that's a good thing. And I truly was already working on the new project. Uh, when Maranatha Road came out, I was already sort of knee deep into the Good Luck Stone. And I think that always helps mentally as you're waiting for copy edits on one project, you're able to spend your time uh, you know, drafting the new project and that sort of thing. So I do always try to have a project going so that whether I'm waiting on feedback from my agent or, you know, there's, as you know, there's a lot of waiting uh, in the writing process. And for me, the best way of dealing with that is to be working on something new, whether, whether it's a novel or a short story. I also uh, take breaks sometimes from novel writing to write some short stories, you know, if that's what I'm feeling at the time. Well, I was curious about that, Heather, because when I was reading your bio, it talked about how some of the parts of this book had ended up in different journals. Did you write some of this story as shorter pieces that you then came back to later to put together in a novel? Um, I did that more so with Maranatha Road. Uh, With The Good Luck Stone, I had a couple of different chapters that I thought were translatable into a short story format. And so I did that um, 
for a couple different pieces of it, but not quite as much as I had done with the previous book. So give me an example from this book, Good Luck Stone. What, what translates to a short story? And how do you do a whole arc of a story when this book is, what, much longer than that? Right. Well, from what I recall, I did take the arrival in Manila and the meeting of Cat and Penny and then sort of pressed the fast forward button, if you will, and told the rest of the story about what happened to them in the war and then kind of jumped to Audrey present day and and how she was dealing with that um, in one of the stories. And then I think I had another story more about the brooch and about how someone from Audrey's past recognized it and reached out to her. And um, that one played around a little bit more with the idea of legacy and, and Audrey wrestling with what her legacy might be. And I'm guessing that some of the people who read it said to you, now, Heather, this really is a novel. You need to really you know, expand this out and write it, write it as a novel. That's right. Yeah. So, you know, that's Give it a try. <laughs> okay, now you told me something interesting, and this is this is we don't often talk about you know whether you should write a book in first person or second person or third person, close, far, whatever. But when we were talking ahead of time, you were talking about the fact that when you were submitting this story, you'd get these uh, agents and perhaps people at publishing houses that would come back and say, "Yeah, I really like the story," but uh, I think instead of being in third person, it should be in first person. And then somebody else would say, I like the story, but instead of being in first person. So you rewrote this into different points of view several times, right? I did. And I, I'm always so gratified whenever anybody gives feedback on a story, especially a novel length story. (laughs) Um, So my agent was sending this one out. We had several, honestly, I sort of lost count three or four, I guess, big rewrites for uh, large New York publishers, many of which involved switching first person, third person. So I had originally drafted it in first person. And then somebody, uh, I, you know, asked me to switch it to third, along with other changes. But um, so I would, I switched the whole manuscript to third person. And then later down the road, I was doing a rewrite for another publisher. And they said, you know, this is this is really great, but I kind of wish it was in first person. And of course, I'd made other changes in the meantime. So what do you do then? You go back and change the whole thing back to first. And then uh, again, we were working with an editor who had shown some interest and they wanted it in third person. So then I had the fun of switching it back to third, um, <laughs> which, you know, is not difficult work. It's just tedious and time consuming. But But truly, whenever you have the opportunity to get feedback from an editor. I I truly am grateful for that. And I do think the book got a lot of attention sentence by sentence, just by virtue of doing that work. Uh, Never mind the other edits and rewrites that we did. But, but as I was thinking about this, Heather, it's not as easy just saying, you know, Audrey did this versus I did this because you've got scenes in third person where, you know, you've got different characters. Um, Did you then just title the head of that particular chapter in the name of the person whose voice you're going to be in and switch it to a first person? Otherwise, the only person could have seen what was going on would be Audrey, right? 
That's right. Yeah. Um, it really, as you say, is a time consuming project to embark on and making sure that the point of view is clear and we know who's talking and who's seeing what. Um, it, yeah, it, it is a sentence by sentence uh, project for sure. <laughs> okay. So I'm going to do a couple of uh, fill in the blanks with you. Uh, the first time you felt like you could call yourself a writer was when? I guess I would say when I got my first short story published when I was an undergrad at Duke. Good. One of your most memorable events as a writer was? Meeting Ron Rash. Oh, how'd that go? He's so nice and lovely. I was just sort of dumbfounded at the opportunity to meet him and chat with him. And he was just very gracious, of course. And then you became a uh, sort of a research groupie about him or something? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, that English major never dies, right? Um, I yeah. love reading and writing and talking about what I'm reading and sort of getting in there and analyzing how these amazing writers like Ron Rash um, do what they do. So, The best money you ever spent uh, as a writer was to purchase what? The best money I ever spent as a writer would be to attend writing retreats with various writer friends of mine. I have been going, it used to be annual uh, with Kimberly Brock and Gina Heron and some other women who've become just dear friends of mine. Of course, we haven't been able to do it this year um, because of quarantine, but uh, that, that time is just invaluable to me. Now, if you could add some superhero powers to your writing skills, uh, to make things a little bit easier on you, what would you choose? Well, besides being better at technology. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there, right? there you go. Exactly. Okay. Um, you know, I think that I would really like to be better at hitting the sweet spot in terms of uh, making sure that what's in my head comes out on the page. And what I mean by that is, uh, character motivation, especially, or the physicality of a scene. Sometimes we can be so deep into our work that I at least uh, forget to remind the reader, okay, we're still on the ship, right? Or, you know, we're sitting on the couch in the living room, <laughs> that sort of physical detail. And then again, you know, being able to read the work from the position of a reader who's just picking it up for the first time it would just be so helpful because as writers, we're so in our head about it already. And it's hard to know sometimes what's coming out on the page versus what's just in our mind. <laughs> so if we're looking for your muse, Heather, um, where do we go to find it? I mean, do you have a particular space that you like to write in the most uh, that, that the ideas come to you or do they just come to you through everyday life? A lot of times when I'm stuck, I will take my little dog for a walk. I have a little Yorkie and, named Blue. And I really find that sometimes just getting out and walking the dog, getting some fresh air, and not necessarily thinking directly about the problem that I'm experiencing, but just trying not to think about anything specific uh, sometimes on that walk or when I get back to the house, it, that plot problem or whatever it was that had been bothering me has either been solved or I have at least some thoughts 
to jot down in my notebook and to think over later. So I'm a big fan of that strategy. Yeah, I like that too. I think walking and getting out and doing something um, it, it is really helps um, kind of crystallize some ideas. Okay, one one last question here. You're still a young writer. You still got you know young in your career, but uh, what would you tell your younger younger writer self something helpful that you've learned over these years of writing that had she known it might have helped her sooner in her writing journey? Ooh, that's a good one. I think it comes back to that issue of having fun with it and finding the joy in it. I am very much a type A person. I want to check things off the task list and and get things done, you know, get things accomplished. And sometimes that can rob the joy from writing. If if I look at it as another job or another task to be checked off the list. And so I have gotten myself into that mess before, you know, and it's not, it can be somewhat miserable, honestly, right? If we're taking an already stressful life and purposefully on ourselves, you know, putting more stress on ourselves. Um, So I think it's good to remind myself, and I would like to go back and remind my younger self to step back a little bit, um, simmer down a little bit, you know, uh, and just have fun with it and remember the joy that brought you to the project in the first place. Yeah. I'm so glad you said that. I I like to think about that too, as I'm doing all these different things, podcasting, whatever, thinking about writing something next and I'm into it. I start to set these artificial deadlines, you know, and, and it's, it's kind of a thing we have as lawyers. We've got these long lists. we got to accomplish these things. Let's check them off, check them off, check them off. And perfectionism is another barrier, right, to yes. being a successful writer because nothing's perfect, right? It doesn't have Absolutely. to be perfect. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> All right, well, this is great. I, I appreciate that. Uh, it's, it's clear to me that you you love writing. Um, you know, ask people why they write, and I'm assuming that's your answer. You just love the experience. I do. I love reading and writing. Whenever I read a really good story, it inspires me to try and and write a good story myself. So it kind of they kind of feed off each other for me. Well, it is a good story. I very much enjoyed reading it. Uh, took it to my cab and read it uh, quickly uh, in a day. And uh, we're we're now to a last scene here. Uh, we're back in the World War II time period. This scene is just to give, I think, the listeners. Um, a little flavor for what the nurses went through in sort of that horrible time. They were on the run, right? Uh, Manila was falling. They're having to push back and they end up in the jungle. Um, Anything else you want to say about that set it up? I think that's a great setup. Yeah. They have fled Manila and are in Bataan now and things are really worsening by the day, I would say. The first patients arrived two days later, and a steady stream followed over the coming weeks. After mobile units near the combat zone performed triage, the hospitals provided follow-up specialized procedures. Their patients needed wounds sutured, broken bones set, limbs amputated, perforated organs repaired. Audrey began to worry about Cat. The unrelenting sun had turned Penny's and Audrey's skin the same toasty brown as the shell of a peely nut. But Cat, with her ivory complexion, reddened, blistered, and reddened again. 
She refused to bathe in the Real River with the rest of them. During the night, she woke constantly, squirming and sometimes crying at the lizards darting across her chest. She became convinced that the harmless lime-green whip snake coiled beside her cot, which kept reappearing despite Penny poking it with a stick, was a sign of bad luck. She started sleeping later and later. Every day, she was harder to rouse than the last. At sunrise, Audrey and Penny took turns at her bedside. Brushing away the ever-present ants, they tapped Kat's shoulder and poked her arm until she blinked her eyes open, disoriented and groggy. Without voicing her concern aloud, Audrey began to watch her for malaria's telltale symptoms, chills, fever, and weakness. Between the damp and the mud, Bataan provided an ideal breeding ground for mosquitoes, and the burlap netting draped across their sleeping quarters offered meager protection. Protocol mandated regular doses of anti-malarial medicine, usually atabrine, but they were starting to run out. Already, Audrey had seen a strapping young soldier become bedridden with malaria in a matter of hours. A new shipment of medicine would help, but supplies were slow in coming, especially once the land routes were closed. Plans called for 40,000 men to participate in the siege of Bataan, but the number soon doubled. With each passing day, stores of food and medicine dwindled, while the number of patients increased. The Sea Kiang, carrying much-needed flour and petroleum, was bombed and sunk before supplies could be unloaded. It's Europe first, that's what they're saying, a young soldier told Audrey one afternoon. She assessed his abdominal wound, while, which the triage unit had sprinkled with sulfur powder. Since he'd come in, he'd been complaining about being left to rot in the jungle. His tag read Delfino, Anthony. MacArthur's moved his headquarters to Corregidor. Anthony gripped his hands into fists. Audrey wasn't sure if he was more upset by the pain or their situation. She'd heard the same thing, that Manila had been abandoned and a new command center established on Corregidor, the fortified island at the mouth of the bay. They're saying he'll go to Australia, at least his wife and son, but we're stuck here. All the rumors about reinforcements, he shook his head. I don't see any coming. Do you? All right, uh, Heather. So we got uh, we got drama, intrigue, and uh, a lot of conflict in the World War II time period, and we got it in the present day as well. Um, listeners, we're going to have information in the show notes uh, with uh, the book cover, uh, images, uh, links, uh, more information about Heather. So check that out. Uh, Heather, thanks so much for being a, a part of Charlotte Reader's Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I've had the best time talking with you. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to the written words. Next Tuesday, we'll have another in-depth episode with readings and conversations about the written word and the writing life of a local or regional author. But before then, be on the lookout for another Under the Covers episode where we do much the same thing we do here, but quicker and sometimes away from the studio. Because there are just too many good authors. And not enough time. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. And you can keep up with news about the show by joining our email list and engaging with us on social media. We promise not to spam you because, well, 
That takes too much time. And if you do join our email list, we'll give you a free ebook written by me. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. Until next week. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Now offering video visits so you can take control of your orthopedic care from the comfort of your home. Schedule online at orthocarolina.com. Ortho Carolina, you improved.